HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. What happens when you don't buy into the belief system you were born into and want out? Amy DeLong joins to share how she left behind her Midwest fundamentalist Christian life for a new beginning as a writer, actress, and performance artist in New York City. It's Monday, May 15th, and this is Love Bites Radio. Welcome to Love Bites, coming at you live from Heritage Radio Network. I'm one of your hosts, Jacqueline Orpozo. I'm 35 and single, and you can find me as at Words Food Art. And I am your other host, Ben Rosenblatt, who now is a working microphone. Woo-hoo! I am 34 in a relationship, and you can find me as at Ben Rose NYC. Hi, Benny. Hello. You did a good job with that opening. You, I can't believe you handed that over to me. I'm very proud of you. I'm very thankful and proud. I could do it. You, did, you, you nailed I it. Hey, considering how many it. times that I've not made it through that, I am, that was your first try and you just, you just fucking nailed what do you it. Say, I was gonna, what, do, what is that baseball thing you do? You knocked it out run, of the park. Knocked it out of the park. Knocked it out of the park. See, I know sports. Um, so today is the second show in our new beginnings series. Why don't we just jump into it? Let's do it. Why don't you introduce our guest? I will. Amy DeLong is a writer, actress, and performance artist living in Brooklyn. She enjoys themes of simulacra, spectacle, entitlement, and the blurry line between the sacred and the sinful. Her fiction, reviews, and interviews have been published in such places as The Rumpus, 3AM Magazine, Pump Metal Magazine, and Nikki Fink's Hollywood Dementia, as well as in John's Mark. Tricks and Chicken Hawks from Soft Skull Press. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. Yay. 
So uh, why don't we kick off our discussion today with this quote from Mr. Desmond Tutu. You don't choose your family. They are God's gift to you as you are to them. Now, after the break, listeners, you're going to hear why this is relevant to our discussion today about new beginnings. But uh, the idea of family and bloodlines sort of keep like pulling us together has come up in my work and come up in just life a lot lately. And I think uh, a lot with the politics that are that are happening, a lot of people are having some strain with family members. And like during the holidays, there was a lot of talk of like, how are people going to go home for the holidays and deal with family members? And so the idea of the blood ties that sort of bind us being a potentially beautiful thing or a harmful thing is just really intriguing to me. So as we sort of discuss new beginnings, I wanted to bring that to the table today. You don't choose your family. They are God's gift to you as you are to them. So let's let's chat about this quote in our relationships with our various family members as they can be a source of strength and safety, but also for some people of systemic abuse. So how do you guys identify with a family member with whom you feel like you should just break ties like are there rules that you have or have you figured out maybe in hindsight that like all right if somebody does this if this crosses the line it doesn't matter if we're tied by blood they have to go what do you guys what do you guys think of this i mean i i'll jump in and say that i'm fortunate enough never to have encountered that situation in my life and i feel very lucky for that i um still maintain really I mean, fairly close relationships with my members of my very close relationships with my immediate family and with those, you know, in my outside family, varying levels of, you know, closeness with them, but never anyone with whom I've ever felt the need to have, like, to cut ties with. I guess I will say what my response to the quote is, is that, yeah, I mean, I think it's true, given that, like, a gift isn't always feel like a gift like gift doesn't always necessarily mean feel like the most wonderful thing i guess in this instance sometimes family can be a gift if it comes to a place where you need to like cut ties or whatever it can be a gift in another way it teaches you something in some form Mm. so i guess i give the credit it's the quote it's due in that regard even though you know familiar relationships can be tricky and can be trying and difficult and sometimes lead to, you know, needing to pull away. What about you, Ms. Amy? Um, <laughs> I hate the sound of my voice. So, okay. Um, my opinion is, and maybe this is because I've seen other people with amazing families, is that if I could, I would maintain a relationship with my family up into you know, pretty extreme situations. Um, I'm really close to my younger sister, but other than that, I would say I'm essentially estranged from my parents and don't have much relationship with my other siblings. A lot of that has to do with the religion I grew up in. Um, But I just think that there's a point at which you just physically can't be around certain people if you're in the room with them and you feel uh, anxious or unsettled or almost even just sick (laughs) to your stomach, then it's just not really an option at that point in time. But um, there's a lot of, there's a big range for what I would put up with. But in my situation, I would say things have exceeded that range. Um, So yeah, that's, 
And as far as them being a gift, um, at the risk of sounding very morose, <laughs> it's a gift to exist. Um, and beyond that, it kind of depends on the situation, I would say. Yeah, like, as far as the bigger picture goes, um, like, that's what I'm thinking as far as, like, what lines do we cross? Like, I feel like for, like, I'm also very lucky in my family, but I also have some members that I don't, I feel like safety, like you were saying, is, like, that's sort of, if you feel unsafe with a person, it shouldn't matter if they're your family or not. Like, that should be a dividing line. Or, like, even, Ben, I remember a few months ago, the question, it came up on the show, the question of, or, or the statement, like, I love you, but I don't like you. And you pointed me to a Facebook post of a friend of ours. And a lot of people had that problem because they, they were estranged or they had abusive family members who would sort of throw that at them. Like, well, I, I love you because I'm your parent, but I don't like you. And it was all, it was this really abusive sort of hurtful statement. And I feel like that is sort of what I'm referring to with this idea of what are the lines, you know, like, why do we like, you know, as children, as family members, like we feel this responsibility to almost hold on to people because we are related to them because we have these blood, these blood ties. And so we accept, we like, you know, we accept more from them than we would from strangers. Well, not than we would from new people in our lives. Absolutely. And not only yeah. that, but we've grown up with these people and it there, I think like is for a long time can be confusion about like, whether or not someone is good for your life because your whole life, maybe you've thought they were, but then you get to a point where maybe you realize that they're not and there's, or you, you don't know, know if you should change or they should change. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I think ultimately Amy, your point is, you know, spot on is that love should be nurturing and that yes, there can be moments of, discomfort and moments of inconvenience and uh, trying times in healthy loving relationships but when it gets to a point of feeling like abuse or feeling like where you're not safe or any sort of real physical or mental detriment taking place then I think that is the time where the relationship probably needs to come to an end do you do you guys feel like we should take, I mean, like I, like, I feel like in some ways it's a little barbaric to consider blood ties as strongly as we sometimes do. You know, like the world is bigger. We've spread out. We don't need to, it's not like we have to have children so that we have people to work the farm, you know, like it's, it's weird, a very different sort of world. Like, do you, do you feel like in general as a, as a people, we consider family and blood, I don't know, too closely, not closely, not like why, you know, like, I don't know. Um, loose question I'm asking. My perspective is, and I guess at the risk of sounding like I'm from a gangster movie, <laughs> I actually think loyalty is more important than uh, truth. So I do believe in that blood bond. I wish I had, you know, a huge obnoxious family where everyone kind of didn't like each other, <laughs> but you still accepted each other. I feel like the acceptance is the thing. Do you feel like that's a? You, do you feel like your position as a result of your childhood, like you wanted that despite? Um, <clears throat> despite, um, I'm not really sure how to apply that sentiment exactly, but yeah, I definitely know that um, my yearning most of the time was to feel accepted, and 
to have situations resolved that were never resolved. A big thing for me was feeling like there was always an elephant in the room that was never supposed to be addressed and that there were uh, huge consequences for pointing the elephant out. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an interesting question as to like whether family is... Like, whether a blood relationship, like, what that actually means and what weight that should hold for any individual. And I think it's ultimately up to any individual to decide that for themselves. Uh, for themselves. Like, I mean, um, you know, I think, like, family can be, anyone, anyone can become your family. And we surround ourselves ourselves with the people who become our family, whether they are related by blood or not. And I think it can often be easier for blood family to remain, be your family and remain your family because they're the people who've been in your lives the longest, but it doesn't always necessarily end up that way. And I don't think like the families we surround ourselves with who aren't family are any less family than our blood families. I agree with that. Agreed too. Yay. All right. So on that consensus, let's shift things up to a lighter note, shall we? It's time to play a game. I feel like we need game theme music. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some next time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Oh, see Peter comes in. All right. So here's what we're doing today. <laughs> you didn't like my the music of clapping. <laughs> my game show. Deedly um, later. Deedly. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. That's probably how everyone feels I, about yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. So here's what we're going to do today. We are combining Mad Libs with I don't know what else I haven't figured out. So we've got three quotes that my friends Amy and Benjamin are going to uh, Mad Libs informing, and they're going to have to guess the original quote. So we've got one about religion, one about the muse of art, and one about music. So uh, we'll just barrel through these. Please give me a noun. Oh. <laughs> Go ahead, Amy. Whoever goes first, shout one out. Noun. Um, puppy dog. Puppy dog. That's a noun. <laughs> and a noun of importance. Um. Uh. President. A person. Princess Diana. Noun. Snakeskin. A person. Joan Crawford. These are not going to make any sense. <laughs> I did. I did this like at six a.m. this morning, so you guys are going to hate me. An art form. Um, pornography. <laughs> Noun. Pornography. <laughs> uh, emotion. Joy. Action word. Leaping. Okay, here we go. See, that's it. So fast. All right. Quote number one. That's me with the puppy dog losing my president. What's the quote? <laughs> that's me in the corner losing my religion. Close enough. That's me in the spotlight oh, losing my religion. Yes, correct. Uh, Yay. That, okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. I knew that one also. <laughs> um, well, you're on the same team. So as long, yeah, so two out of three gets Carl, Carl Castle's voice on your answering machine. Um, number two, Princess Diana. This one's a little bit harder. Princess Diana is my muse. She is the snakeskin I want to know best. The Joan Crawford I want to know better. <laughs> this is a hard one. 
That was kind of amazing, though. That was pretty amazing. Princess Diana is my muse. She's the snakeskin I want to know best. Are these all movies? I want to know better. No, they're all completely random. I don't know that. I don't know this. This is a Frida Kahlo quote. I am my own muse. I am the subject I know best. The subject I want to know better. So, eh. Oh, that's even better. I like that one. Thank you, Peter. Okay, last one. If pornography be the pornography of joy, leap on. If music be the food of love, play on. Very good. All right, that's it. Two out of three. You guys are winners. Yay! See, easy oh, wait, game if today. Be the, what, if pornography, do that, if do the pornography be the pornography of joy, leap on. Okay. Leap on, literally. If pornography be the pornography <laughs> of joy, on. leap on it. Wonderful. Love it. All right, so listeners, we're about to take a commercial break. But on our next show, May 22nd, editor Julia Bainbridge of Atlanta Magazine and the Lonely Hour podcast joins us. She'll be sharing her new beginning story, talking about how relationships and self-identity have shifted with her new job and space. And back in December, I recorded an extra bit of our Ladies Who Lunch episode with Aaron Fairbanks, Jen Dahl, and Lindsay Rupp on the cross-section of singledom and creativity for The Lonely Hour. So that recently went up on episode 21 called The Alone Forever. So if you want to get to know Julia's work and hear what we had to say on her show, check that out at www.thelonelyhour.com. And for more from The Listening Booth, that's the company that produces The Lonely Hour, head to listeningboothmedia.com. Then come back next week when we've got her on the line. Now sit back for a few words from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more from Amy DeLong. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back, everyone. Jacqueline and I are here with our guest, Amy DeLong, and it is time now to grill her a little bit about her new beginning. Um, But sometimes to discuss the new beginning, you need to kind of jump in at the ending. So I'm curious to start us off, Amy, if you could tell us when you were growing up in the Midwest and sort of immersed in the fundamentalist Christian world, what it was that felt the least genuine to you and what you felt you needed to shed the most from that situation? Um, Well, the thing is that nothing actually did not feel genuine. I mean, that's kind of the point of it. It's a very, very insular world, and they're very good at keeping it that way. Um, So I wish it had felt less genuine because it would have been a little easier or faster to break out of it. Um, I think what did feel, I guess, wrong to me 
um, from a very young age was just the Midwest itself. Um, I just thought it was ugly and depressing. Um, and, you know, there was just so much cognitive dissonance about the religion that there wouldn't have been any way I could process it. I mean, sometimes I had moments of thinking, like, it was almost, it was almost in the front of my brain, but not even quite, where I'm just like, you know, I don't, I don't really know what the Holy Spirit is. <laughs> things like that. I don't really know what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Those kind of things. So was there a moment then when you kind of decided that you needed to get out? No. Um, it was like a very, very long process of deconstruction. And oftentimes it was the more shallow elements that fell away first. Um, I mean, it was a long process. The church that I grew up in, I mean, I consider them a cult. I know that they don't function the same way in every region of the country. In some places, they're definitely more extreme. Where I grew up, it was much more extreme. Um, but I, I really don't feel like I completely got out of it, you know, mentally and in every other capacity until I was about, honestly, 26. And by that time, so when, when you say that it was the superficial things that sort of lured you first, can you give us some examples of what you felt like just start, you started shedding in those ways? Um, I mean, I think in some ways I was kind of always a worldly person. I had worldly interests. I liked literature and um, <laughs> French culture. <laughs> Everything that I really actually had a predilection for didn't really actually fit into the world that I was growing up in. But they weren't specifically labeled as bad or wrong, so they just kind of got incorporated into my life up until a point where I was like, eventually realized I wasn't the person that I thought I was in that world. I mean, for example, I thought I was going to be a missionary, and there was a point when I was about 22 where I'm just like, I don't think I can be a missionary. I swear like a sailor, and <laughs> it's just not going to work out. It was just like looking around and seeing that every part of who I was wasn't actually going to fit into that. How, at what point then, and what were your thoughts when you kind of were like, okay, I'm not going to be... A missionary, what am I going to be? And how did you kind of put that together for yourself and deal with having to take steps towards making that a reality? Um, I feel like I'm still taking steps. Um, I think I just, I did feel like I always kind of knew I was a writer, almost like it was just my identity, but I didn't really actively think about it that much. Um, around the time where I did figure out like, oh yeah, I can't be a missionary. That's ridiculous. Um, I had already been writing a lot of poetry and some short stories and things like that. So, um, I didn't really have an actual, um, I didn't have a strategic plan for anything. I just kind of moved forward. So how did you come to New York? I was married at the time to uh, a mathematician who now actually lives in Manhattan. We're friends. Um, he's a math professor. And he got a teaching job in New York. But we we both always knew we weren't going to stay in the Midwest. So uh, it was just kind of the timing. And were you, when you got married, were you legitimately like in love with him and you thought this was going to be together and you would just sort of go where he went? Like if you weren't, if you didn't want to be a missionary 
and you were sort of exploring and figuring out what you did want to do? Like, how much was he a part of that when you came? Um, it's complicated. We we both grew up in the same church, and both of us had parents or grandparents that were kind of higher ups in that world. So I think we just sort of naturally gravitated toward each other. Um, I think, in a way, we were in love with each other, but I also think, in a way, we kind of just uh, clung on to each other for survival. So I think that's basically it. He was, he was one of the only what I would refer to as an intellectual within that that world. So it was kind of like we were all each other had for a long time. So can you describe any detail you can remember about? a moment when you actually felt like you were breaking away from your family or your religion or the Midwest. Like if you say it was such a gradual process, Mm -hmm. what did the actual point of change look like? When did it happen? Where were you and what, you know, what was that moment of something is now significantly different? As far as my family's concerned, there were several moments in my very early 20s where I tried to repair some things and I realized it was just kind of a casting your pearls before swine thing. Um, well, what things were you trying to repair though? Like what were, what were the actual schisms? Uh, I mean, I just had a terrible relationship with my dad. Um, I just don't really like to talk about him specifically because I do have an odd sense of loyalty toward him because of the way I grew up. He was the minister. You don't talk bad about him. You'll ruin his life, that sort of thing. Um, but my younger sister, when she left for college, then it was kind of like, oh, I don't have to go there again. So that was, as far as my family goes, that was sort of the breaking away point. Uh, she's about eight years younger than me. And then um, with the religion thing, even up until about a year after I moved to New York, um, I feel like I was still sort of mentally uh, pulling it all apart. And then I watched um, this documentary called Zeitgeist. I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. But there's a beginning part that just talks about how essentially the Christian story is the same story that has been told uh, recycled over and over again since whenever. And um, it just kind of... I don't know. It's almost embarrassing to say that it blew my mind because it seems obvious. Um, But you have to keep in mind that how I grew up, it was like you stayed in it because you were just completely terrified all the time. So once I watched that, it was just I had this moment where I just stopped believing in hell. And I was like, well, if I'm not terrified of hell, then I don't really have to think about I can think about life in completely different terms now. Amazing. Um and so I have a question. You came here, you fled that life with your then husband. And then since then, you divorced. And I'm curious, you're in New York. You say you're still kind of taking steps towards moving on from this life. Who you have now that understands what you're going through, if anyone, and who you kind of lean on these days, or if there's anyone in particular who's like been particularly helpful to you on this journey? I have some close friends that grew up in very peculiar situations. Um, My situation was very, very specific. And sometimes it's that nuance of your situation that makes it hard to identify with other people. Not so much, you know, everyone's gone through um, difficult things. But for me specifically, it's finding somebody who can understand the exact sort of gist of what I went through. And I've made some really great friends. My closest friends all have very, very bizarre stories. And so there's that. Um, 
also sometimes I just watch cult documentaries and kind of like, oh, I feel you, you know, just I recently watched Buddha Field or the Buddha Field or whatever it was. And um, just at the end where all the people in it who are significantly older than I am now were just like, I don't even know how to function in the actual real world. And so I identify with that a lot. How did you find these people who have these like also very specific you know, stories, was that something you sought out or did you like come upon them sort of randomly? No, it was pretty organic. Um, for example, I'm very good friends with Rachel Klein, who is a theater director. She directed around the world in 80 days a few years back. And, um, her now fiance, Sean Gill, who is an amazing fiction writer and filmmaker. Um, I met them cause I did, I did a burlesque show for an opening party for, uh, a play they were doing a musical play called go go killers and we just kind of clicked with each other and then i started doing um some performance stuff with them and it actually took a really long time for sean and i to get to know each other because we're both so introverted but you know eight nine years later he's one of my very best friends um my best friend i met through burlesque another friend through burlesque and um some friends I've met through my boyfriend also, who is a musician. I don't know. It's been sort of like a piecing together of a, you know, a tapestry or whatnot. So when you say that, um, both in watching these documentaries and then just in your own sense of life shifting, once you realized, once you decided for yourself, there's, there's no hell. And now I can look at the world differently. What, how have your thoughts and your actions and your habits and your choices like what did change from that point like since we're talking about new beginnings like what really were the you know tangible physical new beginnings of your life once you were able to sort of start blossoming after that point um i mean i got divorced we got divorced and um uh you know, the burlesque world kind of opened up a lot of things for me. I met a lot of friends. I had a lot of performance opportunities, things like that. Um, <clears throat> did, you, did you struggle with bringing those <clears throat> new things in? Was it something where you had to... Did it feel like this big sort of burst of yay with these forms of expression? Or was it something that you sort of had to continue to... Um, to look, you know, to sort of accept and look forward to and, and explore? I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like anything in my life has been really me just looking at something and being like, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this thing now. It was just kind of like, um, I just, I feel like in New York City, especially with nightlife scenes and performance and all that, it's kind of just like another underground world. And it felt very familiar to me in a weird way ah, because it wasn't in, <laughs> it was just like this weird alternate universe and i actually just see a lot of similarities between that and how i grew up um but it's just kind of like bizarre world version of it um but i think that i have always felt safe and kind of um yeah insular environments where i feel like i'm hiding but i can express myself at the same time i don't know if that makes sense that does completely what a fascinating parallel i never would have made that assumption for I know, one time. I, like I know for me like burlesque would be this huge different brave you know scary I, world yeah, so I was that idea thinking is so at it as like a rebellion right. for that type of world and I mean it's interesting that you use that word because I mean I am like a footloose cliche basically like I've also been an exotic dancer and 
people who find out that I'm a PK, a preacher's kid, they'll always be like, so is this a rebellious thing for you? And it's just like, I'm not really... I mean, not that I'm not a stubborn person, but I'm not really a rebellious person. It's not uh, my motivator most of the time. It's just kind of... I wanted to dance. (laughs) I didn't even know I could dance until I was about 28. And I just kind of tried some stuff, and it worked out, and... It was just like an easy world for me to be these things that I wanted to be on a fairly small scale, but feel kind of, it was felt, you know, um, parts of it felt exhilarating at the same time. So aside from that sort of insular type of community that feels like home to you, is there anything else from your you know, previous life back home that you miss now? Um, only up until recently, I found that I just miss sort of really small things like grass. (laughs) And, um, well, I guess there's a big thing is that I've kind of feel like I've never quite filled that, um, (laughs) the God shaped whole thing. Uh, it's kind of like, but I did, (laughs) I did have an answer. I had an answer, even though it wasn't, maybe wasn't real, I thought it was real. I believed that it was real. And I don't have that anymore. Like at the end of the day, when everything feels shitty, like I kind of just feel, I'll actually feel physically terrified sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a thing that like, you know, any, like I don't have any religion in my life. And I think that's something like I find I struggle with too, maybe to a smaller degree, but like this kind of thing is like, God, I wish I believed but I just don't. And I think that's like a very relatable thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Does, um, do you find that writing helps you sort of process through that at all? Or do you find that, I don't know if you, if Ben, this goes along with what you're saying, cause I find it can both help and hinder that sort of existential dilemma that sometimes writing can be cathartic and sometimes it just has you spitting more and more ideas. Does it help or, or harm you in that conflict? I don't really think I experience... I'm not saying I don't experience a catharsis sometimes when I'm writing, but I don't think I generally... It's not... One, it's not a motivator, and two, it's just not my general experience. My general experience is that I just um, like accomplishing things, and it's something that I think that I'm good at. So it's, it's comforting in that respect because it's sort of like a solid thing that's always been in my life. Um, but I do think sometimes I'm avoiding the residual catharsis that might happen if I wrote about certain things. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a very dialogue character based type of fiction writer. So I think, yeah, I must be processing obviously, but it's like really easy for me to almost kind of project myself, I guess, onto my characters. So in a way I feel like it's almost me avoiding processing things. I think at some point in time I am going to, you know, write a novel that is, you know, loosely based on my childhood, but I really fucking do not want to. Sorry if I'm not supposed to use that. Oh, no, you're no, not. You can. <laughs> you're, you're right. encourage it. It's hard to control sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we let you go, we're asking everybody this final question. What has your new beginning, your um, leaving the Midwest and coming to New York and all of we've, these sort of series of new beginnings you've had, but what has your new beginning taught you about love? Um, uh, <laughs> I, 
I kind of, that would be hard for me to answer without getting really emotional, which I don't like doing (laughs) on a radio show. Um, I I guess, okay, I can say this, I think. um, The relationship I have now, I think, um, has been provided enough um, security um, that I feel like it's helped me work through a lot of PTSD type things and um, it's kind of helped me to reorient myself so that I can become a more trusting person I suppose (laughs) Um, yeah the end (laughs) thank you so much for sharing that listeners you can find more about Amy's work at www.amydelong.com thank you so much for coming in today and sharing Amy yes thank you Amy you're a great guest Um, thank you also to you, our listeners, for spending some time with us today. A reminder that your membership helps support the nerdy, love-filled 35 weekly shows that bring you the best in food news, policy, social work, and life here on Heritage Radio. As a member, you get access to members-only events and some super cool swag. Plus, we will love you forever for it. So please head to heritageradionetwork.org and click on that beating heart in the upper right-hand corner and tell them Love Bites sent you. Until next time, thank you to our engineer, Vitor, as always. Our theme song is Give Love by Josh Dion. We are Jacqueline Raposo and Ben Rosenblatt and Love Bites. We'll be back next week right here at Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.